We're in Ephesians chapter 3 today. If you take a Bible, the ones in the pews are on page 977, Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. (coughs) One of the great struggles in the early church was allowing Gentiles to come in on what God was doing. It is very difficult to understand what a huge wall of division there was between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Jews had major difficulty with that, and they struggled with it. What are the Gentiles doing in our family? And in the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about this work that God had done to bring Jews and Gentiles together in one family. We saw last week in chapter 2, it calls it one new man, one body, which was the church. The primary missionary that God used to take the gospel to the Gentile world was the Apostle Paul. That was his mission field, was the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Gentile, the word means the far-off ones, those who are far off from God. It was more of a demeaning term. So Paul wrote this letter of Ephesians, which we've been studying this summer. And so today we come to the first part of chapter 3. And... Let's look together at this, beginning in verse 1. Paul's a prisoner in Rome, and he writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So ends the reading of God's word. Let me lead us in prayer. O Lord, you have said that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And many of us have had lots of physical food, and maybe we had some this morning, but we've not had spiritual food. So we ask that you would nourish our hungry souls and mold us into conformity to the image of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Sometimes in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, you have to take the life and testimony of the author, in this case the Apostle Paul, and it's intertwined with the message. So I want to give you just a brief review of his conversion and of his life because to read this and not know about that would be to miss a lot of what is said here. So I know most of you know this, but just a quick overview about this man who was originally named Saul. 
After he was converted to Christ, his name was changed to Paul. Saul was born in a Roman, a city that was part of the Roman Empire called Tarsus. Now that's important because various cities then and now had reputations for certain things. There were cities that were centers of commerce. There were cities that were known for their craftsmanship or for their tourism, like the city of Ephesus. But Tarsus was a center of learning. The academics and Saul received the best education of his day. Now what was most important then was who you studied under. And he had the privilege and the financial backing to study under the best-known teacher of his day, a man named Gamaliel. Now about his personal appearance, all we know, and it's mentioned in the scriptures, is that it was not impressive. How's that for a general term? How's he look? Not impressive. So he never would have made it onto the cover of modern People magazine. He was born Jewish, and so that was not only his family tradition, it was just not his heritage from a social sense. He believed it. He believed the scriptures of the Old Testament. In fact, he believed them zealously. And he did not believe this, this message and these words about this Jesus of Nazareth, that he was the Messiah. He thought that Jesus had been a deceiver. He thought that his followers were dangerous. And so he was a persecutor of them. <clears throat> we know from the book of Acts that Saul was there when the first Christian martyr died for the faith. That was Stephen. It says that Saul was there giving hearty approval he would have been high-fiving the people that threw the stones that killed Stephen. He went from that event to carry out more persecution, to have men, women, and children that were people of the way, that was what it was called, imprisoned. While he was on his way to see this persecution carried out, he meets the risen Lord Jesus, and he is radically and totally miraculously converted. He's baptized, and he spends three years following his baptism, preaching in the area called Damascus. And during his preaching and teaching, opposition grows from whom else but his own Jewish kinsmen. So he has to flee. The opposition is such that his life is threatened, so he flees to Jerusalem and he meets there a man who will play a very pivotal part in Paul's future ministries, and that was Barnabas. Barnabas ventured to introduce Paul to some of the leaders of, among the Christians. And they were very suspicious of this man because they knew him as a persecutor. And they did not know what to think now that he was claiming to be a believer. But he wins them over. And Paul begins to teach and to preach in the city of Jerusalem. But this only lasts about two weeks before the same opposition arises from his Jewish kinsmen, and they plan to kill him. And so he returns, he leaves there, and he returns to Tarsus. And he spends there a silent period, we don't know what all went on, of ten years. Ten years. Uh, interesting, because many of us 
when you're younger, you don't really appreciate school. Most of us didn't. You don't know why am I spending all this time doing this. I want to get on my life and do something that's practical. I remember when Billy Graham, years ago, at the peak of his ministry, was asked, if you knew you had three years to minister, how would you spend that time? And he said, I would spend the first two years in preparation. Well, God has a way of preparing his servants. So Paul is being prepared. He's obviously studying, he's learning, and God is molding his character. So at the end of ten years, guess who re-enters the picture? Barnabas. And Barnabas comes, he's heard of Paul's work, he remembers their first meeting together. And he asked Paul to come to Antioch, to the city of Antioch, to help there with a very fruitful mission work to the Gentiles. And Paul does. He joins him, and they spend a year there, and there's great fruit from their work. Then, because of a famine, they go back to Jerusalem to help the suffering Christians in the city who don't have food. Now it's about 46 A.D., And Paul and Barnabas, after they've been in Jerusalem for a while, they leave and go on an evangelistic tour, a church planting trip. Now, here was a strategy, and this was pretty typical in every city where Paul would go to take the gospel. They would go first when they arrived. Well, just just imagine. Imagine going to a city where there are no believers. No believers, not any. Imagine coming to Macon for the first time, and if, if God said, I want to send you to take the gospel to that city, there's 125,000 people or what, 150,000 people. By the way, no one believes. Now, that is real mission work. That is true church planting work. Well, that was, that was the lay of the land when Paul and Barnabas, when they would go to a place, and they had a strategy. Where do you think they always went first? It's not a trick question. Where did they always go first? The synagogue, they went to the Jewish local areas where the scriptures were taught. And they would try to persuade the God-fearing Jews. It was all, that was what they did in every city. They'd go to the synagogues, they would begin to teach, and then inevitably opposition would arise from those. And so they would then spread out and go to the Gentiles. Now... He goes, and inevitably, though, some of the Jews would believe, but some would not. Most of them rejected the gospel, sometimes with violence, and so they would focus more the preaching on the Gentiles. Now, despite the dangers and even the defection of some of his co-workers, Paul succeeded. I pulled out a Bible atlas last night, and I was looking at where all he had gone on his three missionary journeys and just briefly, I mean, he planted churches in Pisidian Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, and Derby. Later, he takes the gospel to Macedonia, establishes mission works in Philippi and Thessalonica, Berea. Then he goes down to southern Greece, takes the gospel to Athens and to Corinth. Then he goes to Asia, and in Asia is where Ephesus is. He comes to Ephesus, and as he's preaching, a riot breaks out. We read about that in Acts back when we first started this series. Paul is on the verge of being lynched by this crowd. So he, he leaves and he goes to Caesarea. And there he stands before a Roman governor named Felix. And Felix puts him in prison for two years. And then Felix's successor, Festus, 
he indicates that, Paul, I think I'm going to turn you over to the Jews for trial. Paul knew that what such a trial, the outcome would be. So as a Roman citizen, he knew that he had certain rights. So he, one of his rights was to appeal his case to Caesar, which he does. There's a very emotional, moving interview that he has before the governor and before the governor's guest, King Agrippa and Bernice. And then he is sent under guard to the city of Rome. So this fulfills what the risen Christ had said to him, you must bear witness also at Rome. On his way to Rome, it's a stormy sea voyage, and they are shipwrecked. And so he spends the winter on the island of Malta. Now it's 61 AD. When he reaches Rome in the spring, he spends two years under house arrest. And it says during that time he's teaching about the Lord Jesus quite openly. Now, that is where, if you read the book of Acts, that's where things come to an end. And so the rest of Paul's life, we have to piece together from other sources. Best we know, at the end of that time, at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is released, later he is rearrested, and he's executed. So that's the situation. When he writes this, he's in a Roman prison. And so he refers to himself in verse 1, as a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, if I was in Ephesus, if I had been led to Christ by this man, or he had led my father to Christ, or I'm part of this body of believers now in Ephesus, I would ask, why is Paul a prisoner? Why would God permit such a thing? Are you ever puzzled by the providences of God, especially as it applies to his servants around the world? I am. I mean, here was this effective church planter. Do you know how, real, how rare real church planters are? I asked John Kinzer, I don't see him now, but in our first service, I said, John's a real church planter. I said, how many churches did you plant? He said, two. That's one more than most church planters. Most church planters I know go somewhere and they plant one church, and for various reasons, they either stay there as a pastor for a long time, and say, have you ever thought of planting another church? And they say, no, this was so hard, I don't plan to do that again. So a real church planter plants one, then plants another one, then plants another one. They go, and that's what Paul was. Now, if you were God, wouldn't you want that man out on the streets? Rather than corralled up in a, under house arrest in Rome? I would. But you know what? Paul has no doubt. He is exactly where God wanted him to be. And so he says he is a prisoner. We know that he means a couple of things by being a prisoner of Christ. We know from Scripture that he calls himself a bondservant of Christ, a slave of Christ, a prisoner of Christ, meaning that he serves Christ. He's at his beck and call. But the second meaning is that even though he was Nero's prisoner from a human standpoint, he, doesn't, he never thought in, in purely human terms. Paul believed in the sovereignty of God, the control of God, the overarching wisdom of God over the affairs of all people. Therefore, he says, I am the prisoner of Christ Jesus. God has me here. He was so convinced, Paul was, that his whole life, including his imprisonment, was under the lordship of Christ. Are you ever a, feel like a victim of your circumstances? And kind of have the uh, if only attitude. If only, if only I could live elsewhere, then I 
would be more effective in serving him. If only, if only I had more freedom of schedule, if only um, whatever, if only my family structure was different, then, then I would be more effective in serving. Paul knew he was serving Christ and he was right where God had put him. If you could have drawn a circle and said, where's God's will? He, said, he would have said, I am standing right in the middle of it because Paul never left God out of the equation. <clears throat> As I pastor you and, and others and people talk to me sometimes about very much what I would call life-controlling problems and issues, what's distressing, and I feel often my role with people, is just to remind them God exists. Because when we describe our problems, often it's though there's no God. Either in my marriage or in my family or my teenagers or my finances. And, and so the, the scripture tells it doesn't use this language, but don't leave God out of the equation. This summer we've talked about Reformed theology in our Sunday school classes. I hope you've been in those. I hear nothing but great reports coming from people as, about all the teachers and so forth. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that Reformed theology, the first of the three major beliefs, is the sovereignty of God. That God rules over his creation that he is the king overall, that he is sovereign. Now, you may learn that academically. You may know that in your head. Hopefully, it will progress and we'll, where you will begin to apply it to life in a general way. But when we know that we've been impacted by that is when we apply it to ourselves in bad times and in good times. Paul was beyond that. I mean, he had no doubt, I'm in prison, I'm under house arrest, or whatever the particulars were, but I am here, I am the prisoner of Christ Jesus. And he doesn't stop there. He says, I am here on behalf of you Gentiles. Behalf of you Gentiles. What does he mean by that? He's basically saying that the reason he, the opposition arose and had him arrested in the first place was because he was teaching men everywhere that, that they could come to Christ and be part of this, this family. Let me read it to you. Uh, in Acts chapter 22, uh, he's arrested, and when the government official allows him to make his public defense to the Jewish people, they listened to him quietly, it says, until he got to the point in his story where from his own testimony, Jesus said to him, Depart, for I will send you away to the Gentiles. Meaning, I'm going to send you to take the message of salvation to the Gentiles. And then, I think it's verse 21, says, And at this they shouted, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now, is that a division or is that a division? They didn't say we want him dead because he said Jesus was the Messiah. They wanted him dead because he said, Jesus told me to take the message to the Gentiles. And so he's saying, Paul is saying, I'm a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. He's not mad about it. He glories in it, as we see. We're not going to look, if you're wondering, if you're already doing the math, I'm not going verse by verse through all 14 verses. But that's why he was there. So what had led to his imprisonment was opposition to Paul's uncompromising commitment to the message that the gospel was for everybody, for all people, including the Gentiles, and that is why he is in prison. 
Well, what is this message? Just in a general way, in verses 3 to 6, he refers to it. He refers to it as the mystery, the mystery of God. He uses that word three times. Now, in our day, we talk about mysteries being uh, whodunits, something obscure, something puzzling, something secret, the mystery of that's not solved, something we can't figure out, uh, or something that can't not be understood, like a certain disease. Well, can't we find a cure? No, it's just a mystery. But the word here is different. In the Bible, in the New Testament, a mystery was something that had been secret, you might say, for many centuries, and now God has fully revealed it. So for centuries, the Jews had wondered, who will the Messiah be? When will he come? What will the nature be of his reign? What will his kingdom look like? And now that mystery has been revealed. Now we know. And so a mystery is a truth which was hidden from human knowledge, but now has been disclosed by the revelation of God. So that's what he means. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Christ. It's a mystery from the standpoint that it took centuries for it to be revealed to its fullest point. But there's also a particular mystery there, and I think it's in verse 6, where he says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the particular mystery is that through the gospel, Jews, Gentiles, all people, all races, all backgrounds, through Christ become one. We become one new man. And he uses the descriptive terms that we are heirs together with Israel, that we are members together of one body, that we are sharers together in the promises of God. So to sum it up, the mystery of Christ is the complete union of Jews and Gentiles with each other through the union of both of them with Christ. God had revealed it to Paul, but he had also made it known, as Paul says, through the apostles, through the prophets by the Spirit, And now through them to all believers, it was now the common possession of the universal church. And he says it's a new revelation, verse 3. He's saying these these, uh, prophecies had puzzled Old Testament saints, but they were there. The Old Testament promise, for example, these are promises related to the Gentiles. Uh, It had promised that the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's posterity. There was a promise that the Messiah would receive the nations as his inheritance. There was the promise that Israel would be given as the light to the nations. Jesus spoke of the inclusion in the Gentiles when he commissioned his followers to make disciples of all nations, ethne, people groups. But what the Old Testament... Are y'all with me? I hope if you're not, please tune in for this next statement. And I'm going to read it because I don't want to misquote it. What the Old Testament did not reveal was the radical nature of God's plan, which was that the Jewish nation under God's rule would be replaced by a new international community, the church. We are God's nation now. We are, by faith, the seed of Abraham through Christ. And so the church would be the body of Christ, united to Christ, and that Jews and Gentiles would be incorporated into Christ and his church on equal terms, without distinction. It was this complete union of Jews and Gentiles which was radically new and which God revealed to Paul 
And think about this. If we don't think Paul had his own prejudices as a Jewish man toward the Gentiles, and now he is the messenger bringing this that had been revealed to him uh, to preach this message to the Gentiles. Now, that's the heady part. It's hard for me. Now the next paragraph, he's going to talk about his calling to be a minister and to be a preacher, verses 7 to 12. Paul regarded his call to ministry as an enormous privilege. He viewed it as a blessing. He was not a man with one foot in ministry and one foot going backwards. He called himself the least of the saints. To me, says verse 8, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul made that statement more than once through the New Testament. Best we know, he said that because he lived with the fact he'd been a persecutor of the church. And he understood forgiveness, but in a sense that was a scar on his conscience. That He lived with the awareness that brought him great shame that he had persecuted the church. Um, he'd formerly been a blasphemer. He was very conscious of God's mercy to him. You know, the world hates a person who claims to know truth. They, the world, hates it because it sounds arrogant. And Christians are portrayed as arrogant and proud. But a very good indication that a person knows God and has experienced grace is when they have conviction and humility together. Isn't that something? And Paul had it. He had conviction. He didn't doubt for a minute that all these things were true. But he had humility. I'm the least of the saints, he said. Not just the least of the apostles. I'm, I'm the most lowly of all believers. He had great conviction matched with great humility. Now, humility, humility isn't self-effacing. Humility knows who you are and the source of your strength. That's what humility is. It's, it's the opposite of arrogance, that it doesn't look to yourself for your strength. And he says in verse 8 that he was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and his message was the unsearchable riches of Christ. So to preach is to announce the good news. So he would go into the marketplace, in the synagogues, and wherever people gathered. And we find in Acts 19, one example, he entered the synagogue, it says, and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Paul knew the gospel was good news for all people who believe, including the Jews. Well, what are these riches he refers to, the unsearchable riches? Well, those are mentioned in chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians. That's in what came before. They include the fact that there'll be a resurrection from the death of sin, that there's victorious enthronement with Christ in the heavenlies, that there's reconciliation with God. All of those are mentioned in the first two chapters. That now through Christ we're incorporated with Jewish believers in this new society, that there's the end of hostility and the beginning of peace, that there's access to the Father through the Spirit, that there's membership in God's kingdom and household, that we are an integral part of his dwelling place among men, among many other things. Those are the riches he's, he's making reference to. So he calls him unsearchable. And we see his incentive for evangelism because he sees that the revelation that God had given him and the commission that God had called him to preach it. In other words, what had been made known to him, revealed to him, he was to make known to others. The gospel, the news of Christ, is given to us so that we might give it to others. It just wasn't true in his life. 
is true in ours. Imagine any of you that have had a family member with any form of cancer or Alzheimer's. Some of you are in that situation now. Or Parkinson's. What if you or someone had a known cure that was not known by everyone else, but you knew the cure for those things, and you chose to keep it secret? Spinal cord injuries, severed spinal cords, and you knew the cure. If we knew, if you had that cure and didn't make it known to others, we would not say, well, that's not good judgment. We would not say, well, that's, that's really foolish. We would say that's criminal. That is wrong. That is wrong. When you have the answer for those conditions and yet you choose not to implement it, it is criminal. It is wrong. Paul said that is our responsibility to take the good news of Christ commissioned to others because it's been revealed to us. I am to take it to others. Verse 9 says is to be a light to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. Everyone. Pretty broad statement, isn't it? We talk, we hear a lot about human rights and the debates of what's really a right and what's a privilege. People will say, well, people have a right to a free Internet service. People have a right to a house or whatever. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer it out loud, but do you think everyone living has a right to hear the gospel? Yes, they do. I can't read the scriptures and not that everybody has a right to hear the gospel. I wish there was another way to state it, but when he says this is for everyone, it doesn't matter their educational background, doesn't matter whether they can read, doesn't matter their skin color, doesn't matter the political system of the government in which they live, doesn't matter whether they're Jew or Gentile. Everyone has a right. It's good news. I was reading some quotations last night by missionaries. I came across this one by Carl F.H. Henry. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Is it good news for the person that died yesterday? I wouldn't call it good news then. Oswald Smith, who's son preached here years ago, said no one has the right to hear the gospel twice while there remains someone who's not heard it once. He also said we talk of his second coming. Half the world has never heard of his first. David Livingston, the missionary back in the 1800s to Africa, said sympathy is no substitute for action. The British missionary C.T. Studd said if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Of course, you know it's Jim Elliott who said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Hudson Taylor, the missionary to inland China, said the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. And he said if I had a thousand lives, I'd give them all for Christ. I think Paul could have related to those words of Hudson Taylor. How does God make it known? Oh, I'm out of time. Quickly. One word of instruction and one illustration. Verse 10, how does God make this known then? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, through the church. 
And he's using the term for church there, not talking about buildings. I told you that came along much later. He's talking about those in whom Christ dwells here in this life. Us, believers, we are the church. That is whom God makes it known. You ever read sometimes where celebrities endorse products they've never used? <laughs> they can get in big trouble with the law. I mean, the companies that hire them to do that can. But where a celebrity will endorse something as some product, and yet they've never used it, and they'll say how great it was. The gospel cannot be endorsed falsely. What I mean by that is we must first experience it, and then we communicate it to others. Now, let's work our way backwards. If I am lackadaisical toward the souls of other people, and I have no interest in talking to anyone else about Christ, and I'm just, I would, by my head knowledge, say, yeah, that's important, but I don't ever lift a finger to make it happen. That tells me my life is not being transformed by the gospel. Because if I'm meeting with Christ during the week, each day, reading, praying, and the Holy Spirit is filling my life, I will talk to other people about Christ. It will come out in conversation in some fashion or form. But I think it's true that if I'm not experiencing life transformation, if you are not experiencing life transformation, your incentive and motivation to do what he's saying here, to make known the mysteries of God, it, it may even be non-existent. So if God's going to make it known, if the good news is good news, only if it gets there in time, then we as the church must be about his work every day. We can't wait. We can't wait for 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Or we don't know what tomorrow brings. In the 19th century, there was a group of pastors who were organizing a citywide campaign, evangelistic campaign in their city, and they were discussing whom they would like to invite to preach. In the name of the very noted evangelistic of evangelistic preacher of their day was brought up, and that was Dwight L. Moody. Reluctant to have Moody preach, one minister protested, why Dwight Moody? Does he have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? It's kind of quiet in the room, and then another pastor spoke up kind of rhetorically and said, D.L. Moody, Moody, Moody. Does Moody have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit, like he was thinking about and another minister finally spoke up and said, No, but it does seem that the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Moody. Does the Holy Spirit have a monopoly on you? Has he invaded every area of your life? Does he have control of your heart and your soul and your mind? As Carl Henry said, it's only good news if it gets there in time. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is amazing to read these passionate words by our elder brother, the Apostle Paul, written almost 2,000 years ago to people that many he had led to Christ. And uh, we pray that you might empower us by your Spirit to be those who take the mysteries of the gospel, to make it known through our lives, through our lips, individually, in our families, corporately as a church, in our efforts that you might bless us in that endeavor. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.